Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Here at our Fanboy and Know-It-All podcast, where we will be talking about the worst movie ever made. Coming up next. Couldn't have said it any worse myself. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains, which uh, have not been overtaken by aliens, just in case anybody was wondering. I'm sure that was at the top and forefront of everyone's minds. Well, they're not used to hearing me at the top, first of all. That's the first time you've ever let me lead this program. You say let, but it's the first time you've ever wanted to. (laughs) <laughs> well, and I don't know if wanted to is really the operable word, but I did volunteer to read that, which is the opening few lines from Plan 9 from Outer Space. A 1959 classic. <laughs> In a matter of speaking. Many people say that Plan 9 is the worst movie ever made. So we're doing the most painful of Hurt So Good this time. Um, we actually both saw it in the same room. That's uh, true. So we can we can talk about Plan 9 from Outer Space. Is it really the worst movie ever? We'll talk about same it. room, socially distanced. Yes. Just the way we should in a, the middle of a global pandemic, just for the future record keeping, you know. Yeah. For those, just wanted to make sure, you know, the future civilizations could could exonerate us if we were to be slandered. Yeah, we were we were always at least six feet apart, at which, least. Which is pretty common for Paul and I in general. Yeah, we're we typically don't like to be that close to each other. Neither of us are close talkers. Period. Especially not with one another. <laughs> there are many reasons for that that we won't get into now. Yeah, but the biggest one being that we're some smelly nerds, which is why we're going to do a rank geeks on the best spy movies of all time. I'm really excited about our list, by the way. Super, super excited. Uh, Paul has a, a a deep, you know, his, his a deep seated affection for spy movies, and so he's been looking forward to this. Uh, he actually faked a Wi-Fi outage at <laughs> at his location just so that he could decline the idea that I had for this episode and propose best spy movies because he broke. So he broke the Wi-Fi. Uh, fictionally speaking, and then streamed James Bond movies all weekend just to prepare for this list. There was there was no fictionally about it. I was actually watching spy movies. This shows you what a spy movie geek I am. I was watching it on DVD. We actually have the full James Bond DVD collection up where we were, where there was no Wi-Fi. Suspicious. No Wi-Fi, <laughs> but plenty of DVDs and DVD players. I don't know. It doesn't sound like 2020 to me, Paul. <laughs> I'm just saying, let the future record show 
In 2020, he claimed he had no Wi-Fi, but lots of DVDs and DVD players. <laughs> or at least one DVD player. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, we'll... Go ahead. I wasn't listening. I was talking no, no, over it, you. It was it was another line from Plan 9 from Outer Space. I'm just going to quote it all throughout this podcast. Perfect. Sprinkle it in. And of course, we'll wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up the show with the most least important thing. I've got breaking uh, early access footage, not footage, but opinions, hot takes for for Paul and all of my friends in the most least important thing. So you'll definitely want to stick around for that. Um, but right now, it's time for some Plan 9 from Outer Space. And Paul's email notifications. What better way to kick off a Heard So Good segment than by telling you a little bit about Bella Lugosi's last film, a film in which he was never filmed to be in, a film in which he had filmed to be in other films, and then the director just used what was considered unusable footage for these other films he couldn't make to shoehorn into a Baptist film that's <laughs> anti-nuclear weapons. Welcome to Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> One of the best worst movies ever. It is so great. It is so great. Um, just to let's just go over the plot just to just for kicks, even for though what it, for what it's worth, which is very little. Plan nine is essentially a uh, a plan from outer space, uh, where to teach humanity about the evils of nuclear weapons, they are going to raise people from the dead mm -hmm. where they attack other people. This is, that's essentially the plot, right? Yeah. They, they think, you know, what better way or we try, what better way than this way, even though we tried eight different ways prior, <laughs> let's go with the ninth way of warning <laughs> earth of how they're going to destroy the universe by raising zombies from the dead see i'm not sure if they actually tried eight different ways they did try with that little weird babel fish machine that they have to contact the earth or whatnot but i'm wondering whether they tried this with other civilizations like they went through the first eight plans with other civilizations and either they they just wanted to try plan nine out i mean it, it certainly could be the case but it seemed to me at least through expert decoding of the plot that you know the fact that they had tried other things with earth would and then say plan nine is this whole resurrection of the dead thing yeah. but not truly resurrection of the dead as the plan the ninth plan to me that indicated that it was their ninth attempt with humans on earth i got sort of the impression just to throw it back to another podcast was like the old guard where they would talk about Budapest. Oh yes. Let's do what we did in Budapest. You know, the, the main alien guy, he struts around and he says, 
Oh, yes, Plan 9. I wonder whether they've tried Plan 9, raising people from the dead on other planets. I don't know. It's hard to believe that this uh, the civilization actually created space travel, that they were able to get to Earth in the first place. It seems outlandish to me. Yeah, yeah. But we digress. Yes. Regardless of whether they had tried this with eight different planets before, or whether we... They tried eight different times with one planet. The fact that the universe still exists makes me also think that, you know, they had been trying with Earth. Yeah. If they had failed with eight other planets to stop them from destroying the universe, perhaps the universe would have already been destroyed. <laughs> but maybe it was successful. Maybe maybe raising people from the dead just works on other cultures. And we Earthlings were just too stupid, too stupid to figure it out. Well, you'd, you would think that they would have jumped straight to that if that has what worked on other planets. But again, we might be giving Ed Wood too much credit yeah. here. Yeah. So Plan 9, uh, it is by the infamous director, Ed Wood. Uh, he, this was not his only film. He's made quite a few others. And I think all of them are on someone's list of the worst movies ever made. He had a great relationship with Bela Lugosi, who, if you're an old movie fan, you know, was the original Dracula. Uh, way back in 1931, he was he was the guy who we all pretended as 11-year-olds, or at least I did as an 11-year-old, uh, to be when, when we played Dracula. The, the widow's peak and the cape and the big old red sash and the Transylvanian accent. He actually came from Romania. The, the original Bela Lugosi. And he associated so much with the character of of Dracula that he was buried in his Dracula cape. So it's still with him to this very day. Plan 9 was apparently his very last movie. Um, I do believe that he actually did sign to, to be on this movie. Um, and and he, there were actually some scenes where he was he was in it um, this, I might correct me if I'm wrong, Jake. Uh, but I do believe that, that he was originally supposed to be part of this movie and he died actually at the very beginning of filming. So they did get a couple of scenes with him in, but they weren't very long scenes. That is a good point. My research came on Wikipedia. Or Wikipedia. <laughs> so it's entirely possible that you are correct. Just according to Wikipedia, uh most most of the footage was from uh projects called the vampire's tomb or the ghoul goes west <laughs> so a fitting segue might be to talk about uh another character in this film who was kind of famous for who she wasn't as much as for who she was <laughs> and that would be the girl cast as vampire girl yes in the film who was well known in bad movies or maybe good movies. I don't know. She was as Vampira. Vampira. The woman with a six inch waist. She has the skinniest waist of all time. I, I kind of figured that she had to have been at least semi-famous because clearly she had a shtick going on for this. Um, she really does have, has probably the skinniest waist I have seen on anyone, um, including infants, 
she it looked like I don't know. She looked like it, it was a total hourglass figure type of thing without the exaggeration. Um, it was a little bit disturbing. And she had some really long fingernails, right? Incredibly long fingernails. She was uh, the second vampire or second person to rise from the dead. And yeah, she was, she did not die during the movie. Vampira was, was around for all of it. So she did skulk around and, in lots of graveyards with cardboard gravestones and and she was she was definitely a a creepy figure if if i was five years old and watching this movie she'd kind of scare me oh yeah i mean she's got a very unsettling look in the film itself um and you know what just that figure alone, even if they didn't add any makeup, would terrify me as a six-year-old because I couldn't imagine where she could fit a cheeseburger if she wanted to eat one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really true. Which cannot be said for the third vampire that we meet, who, from what I understand, used to be a professional wrestler. Is that right? Uh, Andre the Giant's drunk uncle, yeah. <laughs> Also found that one on Wikipedia. No, I didn't find that on Wikipedia. <laughs> Tor Johnson was his name. And yes, he was a famous wrestler back in the day. He uh, they, he was originally started off as, in the movie as a police chief. That's right. But no one could understand what he was saying. So they killed him off. And then he didn't have to speak at all. He could just sort of lurk and lunge and carry people around. And it was... Uh, he was... Uh, he was good for that particular role. If he didn't have to speak, he did just fine. Yeah, he was like a undead Wilson Fisk from that, Netflix's Daredevil. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's perfect, perfect uh, description of him, actually. You know, there's just – there's a lot going, in, going on uh, in Plan 9 from Outer Space. We could focus on a lot of different things from the acting to the writing to the sets – and the random scenes. Paul, what would you like to hone in on here for you in terms of what stands out to you about how this film hurts? So I think probably my favorite scene takes place at the very end when the aliens, for some reason, bring aboard our heroes who gesticulate with their guns all the time. They scratch their foreheads with guns. They point guns. They It's amazing that no one shot their foot off in this. But they bring them aboard fully armed, and they have a long conversation with the aliens in there. And I cannot repeat the conversation verbatim, but I do remember at one point in time, the head alien who's, you know, trying to, to do plan nine, he turns to the, the, the humans aboard his ship and he says, that's because you're stupid, stupid, stupid. I loved that. That, that was my favorite part of the whole movie. You see? You see? Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> it just cracks me up thinking about it. It was... <laughs> yeah, it was great. It, it really is... One of the things that I realize as, as we sort of talk about it, it, the hurt's so good, it's almost indescribable. So much of it is so bad. You've got, you know, the... Uh, the flying saucers definitely on strings. You've got the very, very strange characters that populate the story. Um, 
the dialogue that just sort of rambles everywhere and and it seems like the plot actually switches from a time or two yeah. or ten. Um it's it is really a, a true stew of badness, which I find delightful. I mean, honestly, this this was a movie that I have seen multiple times and I enjoy it every single time. But this was your first time, right, Jake? You had never seen watched this movie before. Correct. It was my first time with an Ed Wood movie or with Plan 9 from Outer Space. And uh, yeah, whether it was the cardboard steering wheels on the airplanes. Those were pretty great. Which were pretty great. Uh, whether it was the inexplicable character choices time and time again. Um, the, the, the guns. Like the, the presence, there were so many guns being wielded so poorly throughout the film, like almost start to finish. People literally doing everything but scratching the top of the inside of their mouths with the barrels of guns. That You expected that before the movie was done. Uh, it really does all work together in sort of a, a tapestry of what makes and defines a Hurt So Good film. That is something that is so delightfully overwrought and poorly done so as to become an enjoyable watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, at least this qualifies this, this to me um, of all the, uh, the hurt so good that we've done on this podcast. Although I got to say China salesman was pretty bad and great. Um, but this might be like the ultimate one for me. On the hurt so good category, this this would be a solid. I'd give it a solid nine point five. That's a high score. Yeah, it 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 has an element of campiness to it, um, and and boy, the way it thought it was so eloquent with its uh, message. Yeah. And I, seemingly clever until it just starts slugging you across the face with bats and two by fours and tire irons with its <laughs> message by the very end. You know, uh, it it at least tried to have a creative approach at first, whereas right. China Salesman was like, start to finish, this is Chinese propaganda. Right, right, exactly. You know, what I was sort of struck with with Plan 9 from Outer Space was the concept was pretty fascinating. If like invaders raising dead people, right? Like all of a sudden the sleepy little town on the outskirts of Los Angeles is dealing with, you know, people disappearing and graves being robbed and, you know, police detectives are going missing and yeah. Lights and attacks on people in the town, you know, just out on the outskirts. Right. And uh, of the cemetery where these bodies are being exhumed by aliens and so you're watching this and you're like, wow, this once you realize and put together that they're doing all of this to 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 deliver an anti-nuclear weapon like treatise, you're like, that was you know what? I'm gonna give you points for a really creative attempt at decrying nuclear weapons. Yeah. And I know I've been kind of stuck on that, but I, I think it shows something about shooting a shot, even if you miss wildly. It was the 1950s. All science fiction movies had to carry some sort of metaphor for them, right? 
And this one was a, a fairly, you know, this wasn't even really a metaphor. This was just a blatant message. Right. Don't kill yourself or else the dead will walk again. You know, that was, that was pretty much the message of the movie. And right. I appreciate that. It's a good message. Or, you know, even more succinctly is, hey, idiots, if you keep trying to blow up fundamental building blocks of the universe, eventually you might blow up the entire universe and yourselves with it. So one thing that you you sort of teased, but I, I did want to mention again, this may be one of the very first Christian movies ever made. I highly doubt it was one of the first Christian movies ever made, but <laughs> that's, well, that's a good point. But it, you're right in that it is probably, again, a more creative Christian movie than I've then maybe I might say this, this might be the most creative Christian movie I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's not to say that it has any sort of faith context at all. Although, although the aliens do sort of talk a little bit about God every once in a while. Uh, but apparently the part of the funding from this movie came from a local Baptist church. And so they had some of the, some of the officials from, from this church, play minor parts a couple of the the church associates were the grave diggers um yeah so you did have a few a few little nods to the faith-based film community um i heard a rumor that pretty much they they required that every member of the of the film be baptized and so they they were all baptized in a local hotel pool Oh my gosh. If that if that's true, uh I want to see that movie. <laughs> the making of Plan 9 and Plan 9 would be pretty great. Uh how yeah, how they like how did that work for Bella Lugosi? Did they just baptize his dead body? Is that the Baptist church cool with that? You know, I th- I think he was already he was already a man of faith. Uh, was so he? I, think, I mean, <laughs> he did he did shy away from crosses a little bit more than you would expect, but I, I still think he might've been, you know, on board with the whole faith thing. Well, you know what? Let me take a look here while you uh, continue talking about this, this Christian film and see if I can find out. <laughs> no, it was a, it, I, I think that in terms of, of some of the Christian movies that I have had the pleasure of reviewing, this one definitely had Unlike some Christian movies, they can feel a little paint by numbers. You know, the, you you, you kind of know the arc of a Christian, a typical Christian movie, you know? Right. Someone, someone is doing fine. A terrible tragedy happens. He suffers. He gets away from God. He realizes at the, the end of his rope that, that God is really the answer. And so he comes back and it's all great. Plan 9 from Outer Space was not your typical Christian movie. It had some unexpected turns in it. How's that for filling its time? You did good. I can't really find anything definitive on, you know, his faith. So, yeah. If he was Romanian, he was probably Catholic. He was, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just guessing. I don't, I don't want to call, you know, suggest anything that is not true, but. Yeah. Far be it from us to spread conspiracy theories. Beyond the potential faith or lack thereof of Bella Lugosi, I I have to say I am glad that I have added this to to my repertoire of bad movie making. Um, that being said, I can't say that it is my favorite 
bad movie that I've seen so far. Uh, I know you mentioned China Salesman, but the one that's still for my own personal repertoire, that's not the right word, my own personal list of bad movies that is still at the top is one we haven't really dove into on this podcast, and that's Troll 2. Troll 2. Which... That was a classic, for sure. Yeah, we may have to do that for a Hurt So Good down the road. It's yeah, a- we may have to bring it back, because I think it's worth rewatching, mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, just really... Like it, that one is just so over the top and they make so many, you know, I think there's so many bad things within plan nine from outer space, but you at least kind of see where they were going with it. Troll two, there's so many bad things that make zero sense and yet they go for it (laughs) and they go for it hard. And it is a classic. It is. You're just like. There is no conceivable way that anybody thought this could make any lick of sense. And yet they're like, this needs to be in the film. This needs to be in the film. <laughs> like at least, you know, with Plan 9, it's like, it's a lot of bad execution. Troll 2 is just... It's just bad. Bananas. But it, it, it is bad in a good way. Whereas, you know, the other movie, like the the triumvirate of bad movies, right? Plan 9, Troll 2... Mano's Hands of Fate. Mm-hmm. Probably the three that are mentioned most often as the worst movie ever made. Troll 2 is really bad and very fun to watch. Plan 9, old, retro, fun to watch, really bad. Mano's Hands of Fate, man, that is just a really, really, really bad movie. Yeah. I mean, terrible. I, I had a good time watching it. But it it really was painful to watch at times, you know? Yeah. No, I, I would concur with that, that. That Manos is the more difficult to actually get through, like unless you've got people with you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Misery loves company. Manos demands a lot of communal misery to survive. Yeah. So all that said, I'll give personally, I'll give on the Hurt So Good scale, I'll give uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space a negative 8.5 out of 10. <laughs> you would have thought that, you know, and if if you combine both of our scores and take out the negative, of course, it would equal 9. So that seems appropriate. There you go. Or, you know, add both of our scores, divide by 2, it averages out to 9. The math is there. There you have it. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Have you seen it? You want to talk about it again? Rewatch it? Hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time for Rank Geeks. Here we are in Rank Geeks, a place where Paul and I, fanboy and know-it-all, two smelly nerds, like to put things in numerical order. We don't always do it with any consistency. In fact, the only consistent thing about the way we rank things is the fact that we will do it inconsistently, differently from one another and in every episode and uh, throughout time and history. And we reserve the right to change all of our rankings at any time with no written notice provided to any parties. Uh, But we also do provide written notice of the fact uh, an audio notice. That's what this podcast is, of the fact that these lists are indisputable by anyone other than ourselves. Completely, completely variable and always definitive. A hundred percent. 
Uh, and so this time we're we're taking our irrefutable definitive list making skills and applying them to the spy movie genre. Yes. Based on Paul not having Wi-Fi. Yeah, not having Wi-Fi, but I did have a lot of James Bond movies. Um, this actually came about because I was watching, I was watching, I even hate to say this name on our podcast because it's fairly family friendly, but I was watching Octopus. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to have to bleep that out, Paul. (laughs) I know. I have not liked that name ever, but that's what we were watching. My wife and I were watching, watching this particular movie. Um, And as I was watching and texting Jake to suggest us doing spy movies, I thought to myself, you know, this movie is really terrible when you think about it. I mean, this really would be a good hurt so good movie mm. because you have these weird action sequences that come out of nowhere. This is, this is the movie where James Bond essentially joins a circus to stop a nuclear bomb from going off. Um, you have this, this grand finale where you have a bunch of all, this all female circus troupe uh, attacks the bad guys. Trapezes come out from nowhere so that these, these trapeze artists can swing around and hit people. There's a big old, um, yo-yo weapon that's made out of blades, Ooh. which sounds. Are you sure we're not talking about Kill Bill. No, <laughs> not Kill Bill. But the only problem with this with this yo-yo weapon is that the person who wields it has to be above the person who he's trying to kill, and the person that he's trying to kill has to stand perfectly still while he does it. Of course, he has, he has to be like a floor above, and he has to have people grab their victim. Um, so that he can kill it. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I do like me some James Bond movies, but sometimes these are really awful. But it got me thinking, there's a lot of really good spy movies that are out there that are that are much more worthwhile than Octopussy, technically. Oh my gosh, now I'm going to have to bleep him again. Another bleep, another bleep. I feel really terrible. But so that was sort of the impetus for this. And, and because of that, Jake, even though I profess to everyone who will ever ask me that I really like my James Bond movies, I did not put a single James Bond movie on this spy list. Interesting. Nor Mission Impossible. Wow. Nor Bourne movies. Whoa. Wow. I I gave myself a, a higher level of difficulty in creating my list, so... There you go. There you have it. Content caveat with Paul Acey. <laughs> so I will not mention Octopus again. Oh, there we go again. Sorry. Just, you know, let's just call it Octocats. Octocats. Yeah. Problem is when you say the actual title, Octopus, uh, it makes me like mentally all I can think of is the movie Teeth. Which is horrible, horrible. Like, don't watch the movie Teeth. Like, it was one of those really poor discernment decisions as a teenager at Blockbuster, you know, with my buddy. Yeah. Like, yeah. We're, we're seniors in high school. And it's like, oh, what's this movie Teeth? It looks real edgy. This, like, comedy fantasy horror about. Uh, yeah. I've I, been I, all the wrong places. And I seriously regret having watched that movie, but. Now, when you say that, I think of bad movies. I think about teeth and 
it's the worst. Yeah, it, it. I don't think Octopussy Octocats is quite as bad as that movie. <laughs> but the name is very awkward. It actually might be worse because Octocats has some seriously, you know, anti women messages you know it's very demeaning of women all those james bond movies right that's what i'm saying whereas at least teeth had an empowering message inside of a terrible movie yeah it it was very empowering very painful. <laughs> uh, octocats i can't imagine being very empowering for women yes <laughs> when, when i go back and again i i have always liked james bond movies but man i tell you what the older james bond movies it is so cringy. The, the, James Bond would definitely, definitely have run afoul of the Me Move, Me Too movement, of most HR policies, of basic human dignity in in some of his movies, um, and yet the gadgets are still kind of cool. So well, and you know, it probably doesn't help that your grandma introduced you to it, right? <laughs> That's really true. Yeah. Yeah, my grandma was the James Bond fan. <laughs> Thank you, Paul's grandma. <laughs> this podcast episode sponsored by Paul's grandmother. She also taught me how to gamble. <laughs> oh, yeah! We, Look at we, that. We, We're doing a whole episode on Paul's life with his grandmother. <laughs> like lessons from grandma. Different part. All right. With that said, Paul, what's number five on your list? Number five on my list. Uh, I am going to go back to my childhood. This was one of the one of the first five movies that I actually saw in a theater. It stars Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman, and the name of it is No Way Out. Um, this is a movie. Jay- oh, I see you're using childhood very loosely. <laughs> yeah. It was 1987. I was a child then. Um, you were legally an adult. I was not legal. Well, no. You you legally became an adult that year. Don't be aging me. <laughs> it was uh, it was a really pretty intense spy thriller where Kevin Costner uh, looks like he is being accused of being a Russian spy because he had an affair with the wrong woman. The woman dies in a terrible accident, and through circumstance. Uh, they figured that that he's got to be the killer. They or or that whoever was with the woman at last was likely going to be the Russian spy. They Isn't had, that the plot for the first episode of The West Wing? Exactly. That's exactly right. They um so but there's there's one negative that they have to reassemble, so they do it on a dot matrix printer. Trying to reassemble the the dot matrix printer is printing off pretty much during the entire movie, slowly revealing the <laughs> that we know it's Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner is trying to find the real Soviet spy, quote unquote, real Soviet spy, uh, before his picture blows the whole game. So it's actually a really gripping movie. Um, you should watch it, Jake. I uh, I've actually seen some of it. Have you? I think I it was one that I ended up falling asleep during, but it was one that I, you know, recorded onto a VHS tape off of cable back in the around the turn of the century, you know, a couple of years after the turn of the century, when that was when that was still a thing. Um, 
because I was catching up on all the stuff from the 80s and 90s that I knew I missed. And at that time, at that age, like Kevin Costner, Sean Young, like I had watched Dance of Its Wolves. I had watched Blade Runner. Like I knew I had to watch this. Yeah. But I, I ended up falling asleep because it was a little – it was late at night. It was a VHS. You know, I was tired. And I don't think I ever came back to it. But maybe I've got to come back to it. You should come back to it. And and to tell you the truth, it might not be as good as I remember because I was impressionably young then. I was a child then, Jake. So it might not be as good as I remember. But I remember really liking it. You know what? Now, because you keep insisting that you were a child, I'm looking at what – what month it came out in 1987 to decide whether or not this is true. Uh, Paul, No Way Out released on August 14th of 1987. Shut up. Go on. <laughs> What's number five for you? Number five for me actually came out when I was a child. <laughs> uh, my, my caveat for my list is that I went on an accessibility matrix Number five being the most accessible all the way to number one, most accessible to kids and then like moving you through like to to get somebody into the spy movie genre who's never been in the spy movies, might not be sure what to do. You know, maybe it's how I'm going to introduce my own kids to the spy movie genre by working them, working my way up. All right. It's right up there. Got your math. You got your reading. You got your spy movie genre that you need to slowly introduce them to. Right, exactly. Just like, um, you know, all of us have to decide how we're going to introduce our kids to Star Wars. And now that we have all these nine episodes and intermittent episodes and TV shows, we have to decide what's the right cut of the Star Wars series to introduce our children to. Because we could watch them one through nine now in the Skywalker saga, but is that the right way to introduce your children? So anyways... This is my this is my official spy movie introduction kit. So number five in this sense is actually number one, the first movie you want to show to your kids when you introduce them to spy movies. And that is 2000, from 2001, uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez. I knew, I knew this was going to make your list. I knew it. I knew it. I thought. I, I even told my wife this. I said, I know. Jake is going to pick Spy Kids. You know what? I'm not going to lie. Half of the reason I picked Spy Kids and decided to do my list the way I did it was to put Spy Kids on a list of spy movies <laughs> that I was listing with Paul because I knew he would love it. <laughs> I've never seen Spy Kids. Really? Yeah. yeah. This would have, this would have been right in your kid's wheelhouse. Yeah, I was uh, I was having them watch French foreign movies at this time. <laughs> Um, that sounds that also sounds about right. Yeah. Um, you know, when you look when you look at spy when you look back at Spy Kids and you think about the fact that it was director directed by Robert Rodriguez, uh, who's not known for kid movies. Not really his main thing. Same thing with Antonio Banderas, not a kid movie guy. Carla Gugino or Gugino, I don't know how you say her name, not a kid movie person. Um then you have like Alan Cumming and Tony Shaloub and Terry Hatcher and Cheech Marin and Danny Trejo, and you're like Mike Judge, like these are some names that you don't associate with kids' movies. And uh, Spy Kids was probably one of those early examples of a movie that was that was had a, a level of self awareness to it, that it knew it was a bit campy, but it also wanted to introduce you to, to the spy genre through these kids being introduced to the fact that their parents 
are spies and now need them to save the day. It was a great introduction to the spy movie genre for me. I think this honestly probably was the first spy movie that I actually watched. I was wondering, so how old were you when when this movie came out? I was, I'll, let me look at the month. I was, uh, I was 11 years old when this came out. Years old. So you were at prime spy kids, lovability age. Oh yeah. Alexa Penavega or Alexa Vega at the time. She's Penavega now that she's married, but you know, she was my age, you know, that, that I was about to turn 12. Um, and it was like, you're, you're like, this is all right. You know, spy movie. This is a kid that looks like me that I could, I could be a spy. I could be a spy. This is a real thing. <laughs> I actually received two copies of Spy Kids for my birthday, for my 12th birthday, because it released on video just before my 12th birthday. And one person gave me a VHS and one person gave me a DVD. Oh, which person is still your friend? I would imagine the DVD person. Uh, actually, you know what? It was my, um, my friend gave me the DVD. My parents got me the VHS, I think. Maybe oh. I've got that backwards, but there you go. Oh, very interesting. Parents uh, parents fell down on the job there, I guess. They're probably going to listen to this and be like, we got the DVD. We're not even getting credit for it. <laughs> number four on your list, Paul. Number four for me. This was actually done when I was a child, an actual child. And I definitely did not see it as a child because it was rated R. But it is uh, it is a classic, however you want to slice it, 1976's Marathon Man. Well, Dusty Hoff. Dustin Hoffman, Laurence Olivier, Roy Scheider. It is a great, great uh, spy movie. It, it's it's not really, you don't have people lurking in in, in you know, the fog with trench coats or anything like that. But it's definitely a spy movie. It has the CIA. It has all these agents killing each other um, in in uh, relation to this old Nazi war criminal and his stash of diamonds. Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays this fledgling marathon runner who sort of gets mixed up in it because his brother is secretly a spy. And it it, it features one of the most memorable dentist scenes of all time it is gripping and even if you haven't seen the movie you probably have heard the line is it safe and this is the movie that it comes from is it safe i always sing a lord of the rings is, is it, it secret safe? is it safe yeah yeah no this is a totally different is it safe dentistry dentistry, dentistry and marathons everything a good spy movie needs <laughs> Lawrence olivier he is the worst, best dentist you can ever imagine. A Nazi dentist. That's not a good combination. And he definitely uh, lives up to the Nazi dentist billing. So is it, I'm imagining it, you know, jokes aside, sort of as the 1970s equivalent of uh, what happened to the dude with piercings in Tom Jane's The Punisher. Didn't see that movie. You can imagine, though, dudes oh, got piercings. They need to get information from them. They've got pliers. Yeah, it's it's pretty much the same thing with cavities. Oh, good. Both, both existing cavities and new ones dug. Oh, oh see. you know what? I've been watching spy movies for a long time now, and I had 
I'd been thinking there's just not enough with cavities and dentists and marathon runners. And here this was sitting right under my nose the whole time. Right under your nose. Yeah, it's, it is definitely worth a little visit, but it does have a lot of content caveats. Content caveat with Paul Acey. I mean, Lord's Olivier, who needs him? He doesn't do anything. He's never done any movies worth watching. Oh my goodness, what are you saying? What are you saying? Nobody knows who that is. Nobody's watched The Boys from Brazil. Nobody's watched Hamlet. Laurence Olivier, one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of all time. Dustin Hoffman, one of the greatest method actors of all time. You forced me to use this story. I was going to try to make this a shorter podcast. <laughs> but now, because of your... You're not forcing nothing. <laughs> so, so Dustin Hoffman, you know what method acting is, right? You, you suffer for your craft. And so because Dustin Hoffman was in such pain all the time, or his character was in such pain all the time during this movie, he forced himself to do some amazing things. He would go for, without sleep for days upon days. He would actually run a lot. He would starve himself. He would, he would do a lot of things and he would crawl onto the set. And essentially, you know, Laurence Olivier, he would come to the set crisply dressed, perfectly coiffed, uh, although he was bald. He would, he was just, uh, he always had that appearance of grace. And Dustin Hoffman thought, what, what is this guy about? Why, how can you get into character this way? How can you act when you're not doing anything? And Laurence Olivier turns to him and said, my boy, it's called acting. <laughs> Not lived experience, idiot. That's the message version written by <laughs> Eugene Peterson. Exactly. Number four for you. Number four for me. All right. So you've introduced your child to Spy Kids. They're into it now. But Spy Kids is more about the modern spy. What if you want them to get to know the classic spy? That's where you upgrade them to a little mid-90s gem. This one came out when I was eight years old. And it stars the perfect spy, Bill Murray, in The Man Who Knew Too Little. This is a great way to start introducing your child to the old school spy through Bill Murray, who ends up being a spy while thinking that he's acting. I mean, talk about a segue from Paul's story. <laughs> the entire plot of The Man Who Knew Too Little is about a doofish doofus american who gets thrown into this live acting uh you know entertainment in london while he's trying to visit his brother and then actually gets streams crossed and becomes a real spy in the midst of it all and it's bill murray and it's perfect and has one of the my favorite closing scenes in a spy movie ever as he is then approached to by <laughs> to be recruited. Oh my gosh, it's it's just worth going back and watching. I rewatched this with my wife a couple of months ago because she had never seen it, and ah, oh, it's great. It's just great. Just great. You know, and it's got all these old spy movie tropes, right, Paul? I I have no idea. I you've never seen the man who knew too little. Not only had I never seen it, I had never. heard heard of it until now are you kidding me i kid you not that is how that is how 
oblivious I am to your number four pick. And, and actually, I think how oblivious the culture is to your number four pick. Oh, my goodness gracious. Bill Murray. It's Bill Murray. And Peter Gallagher. Alfred Molina is in it. Come on. As Boris the Butcher. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I haven't seen it. The Man uh, Who Knew Too Little. The okay. Man Who Knew Too Little. 1997. Came out when I was just a wee eight-year-old. Uh, so good. I'll, uh, while you go to your number three, Paul, I'll look up where you can watch it. Cause I think you and Wendy would enjoy it. All right. All right. Number three, we're going to go way, way, way back in the past before I was even born. Um, this was a movie that I caught up on, on actually a, a DVD, uh, not so long ago, but I had heard so much about it. I, I needed to give it a shot and it stars, well, it stars Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Janet Leigh, and Angela Lansbury in a role that I never would have expected Angela Lansbury to play. A very disturbing, somewhat incestuous mother. Ooh, gross. She is. And it's number three on Paul's list. Number three on my list, The Manchurian Candidate, 1962. Ah, see, that's one. I've only seen the modern version. Oh, see, the modern version is terrible compared to the original one. Um, you got to check out the 1962 classic because it was made right during the Cold War. So you've got you've got this sense of urgency about the Manchurian Candidate because it's about essentially Soviet sleeper agents. Uh, theoretically, the Soviet Union planted a bunch of people within high they trained them all secretly while they were imprisoned in the Soviet Union. They allowed them all to escape. They go back to the United States. They take up positions of power. And then with a snap of the finger, essentially, they're sort of activated into Soviet agents. Um, it really discusses the Cold War paranoia of the time, um, both sinks its claws deep into it and also sort of lampoons it a little bit shows how how crazy it, it, it was to, to think about some of this stuff uh but angela lansbury is so incredibly creepy um she was actually nominated for an academy award for this and frankly i think she should have won so yeah the manchurian candidate the 1962 version not the 2004 perhaps we could make a a a movie that does the same thing, but for QAnon folk. It's an interesting thought, right? I mean, we, we are in sort of an age of paranoia in a different sort of way, of huge conspiracy theories. I think there could be something done. Because this would have been sort of on the tail end of McCarthyism, right? Mm -hmm. And the Red Scare in the 50s and 60s. Absolutely. They smack, kind of smack dab in the midst of that. Yeah, yeah. Makes tons of references, actually, to McCarthyism. So that was... It was a huge part of this movie, and, and because it was done right in the heart of the Cold War, I do think that it carries a sense of urgency that you just can't you can't find in a, in a more modern reproduction. There you go. Number three on my list is, all right, we've got the modern spy yeah. kids. We've got the classic spy in The Man Who Knew Too Little. Now we look at the romantic spy movie, right? We need that in here, except except we're going to turn the formula a little bit. Turn the formula a little bit, all right? 
Paul, I hope you knew this one was coming on my list because if you didn't, shame on you. Um, it's from 2005. It was directed. Uh, it was directed by somebody you don't hear about a lot, Doug Lyman. Uh, but it starred Brad Pitt. <laughs> of course. And that's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Come on. This is a popcorn spy flick with that element of romance and intrigue. This is the watchable spy movie for the Mr. and the Mrs. It's right there in the title. Uh, it gets it gets some demerits. This, you know, I'll be real. It gets some demerits for the fact that it was probably instrumental in ending Brad Pitt's marriage with Jennifer Aniston. (sighs) That's a bummer. I, you know what, Brad, greatest actor in the world, not necessarily the greatest husband in the world. I'm, you know, I'm not putting any plugs for his husbanding, husbandry skills with horses or with wives. You know what? Demerits, demerits, but Mr. And Mrs. Smith is a fantastic next step on that journey of, indoctrinating somebody into the way of the spy movie because you get the romance, you get the humor and it's so watchable. It's so watchable. So, you know how many movies I've seen on your list so far? Am I O for three? Because that would be amazing. Zero. But I didn't know this was going to land on your list because Brad Pitt, you know, and it actually forms a great, A great segue to mine number two, because if you're talking about romantic spy movies, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, though I have not actually seen it, cannot possibly equal my number two pick. Oh. My number two pick is perhaps the quintessential romantic spy movie, although you might not even think of it as such. That would be North by Northwest. Right. You know what? I've seen North by Northwest. And guess what? I didn't put it on my list because I wanted to cede it to your list. <laughs> so, you know what? I win. But you go ahead. That's cute. No, Alfred Hitchcock, one of the greatest directors of all time, of course, directed this masterpiece in 1959. Hey, same year as Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This one is a slightly better movie than Plan 9 from Outer Space. It stars one of my favorite actors, actually, Cary Grant. Uh, Eva Marie Saint is his love interest in this. That's right. Mason plays the evil bad guy. Um, Like many of Hitchcock's spy thrillers, it involves a guy who sort of gets roped into this strange, convoluted plot that he had nothing to do with but has to find his way out of. Um, and that is Cary Grant. He he runs around in a dapper suit, uh, tries to dodge these airplanes, tries to dodge the bad guys, hangs off of the nose of some guy on the on Mount Rushmore. It's all just incredibly watchable, very thrilling. Um, it it's actually, I think, one of of Alfred Hitchcock's most entertaining movies. I wouldn't say it's necessarily his best. But in terms of just a kick to watch, North by Northwest just kills. 
Yeah. And it's one of the classic spy movies that the man who knew too little would have been sending up, right? With the mistaken identity, some normal person getting sucked into an epic world of intrigue and uh, danger. So it's it's a great pick. I've seen North by Northwest. I enjoyed North by Northwest. I'm a fan of Alfred Hitchcock. It's a good pick. Yeah, I almost, by the way, thought about putting The Man Who Knew Too Much, another Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, starring Jimmy Stewart and and, uh, and Doris Day. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm glad I didn't because North by Northwest, if we're going to have one Alfred Hitchcock movie on here, it should be this one, I think. Number two for me. Uh, this is a, you know what, I'm going to say I'm a bit surprised in that I did not think that I would be the only one to put one of these films in my list. But <laughs> here we are. This is the first James Bond film I ever watched. And it actually sold me uh, on watching the next couple of James Bond films, even though I had a completely negative – I had a very negative view of James Bond as a whole from – you know, all the old films and then even the Pierce Brosnan films that were coming out when I was a kid and an adolescent. um, I just thought James Bond is terrible. It's he's just the worst. He's a womanizer. These films are anti-women and they're gross and he's seedy. And then in 2006, Casino Royale dropped and Daniel Craig just blew my mind. And I was like, this dude, this guy, this, I thought of James Bond, not only as being this gross womanizer, but also being kind of a, a dandy, if you will. Daniel Craig was this macho guy who, you know, they set the tone from the first, the opening scene in Casino Royale where there's this epic foot chase, which is an incredible foot chase, where, you know, this acrobatic uh, miscreant. Parkour, right? Essentially, it's parkour. Yeah. The, this acrobatic parkourian miscreant that he's trying to track down, you know, swings and jumps and slides through this little gap in a wall. And you're like, how is he going to – boom, shoulders through the drywall. And just continues the chase. And you're like, this is a James Bond, unlike any James Bond we've seen before. And uh, Daniel Craig throughout Casino Royale won me over to the James Bond universe, at least for his films. And also I thought was a really good template of how you could have some great, you know, it was like that it was a, a step more serious than Mr. And Mrs. Smith, which never got really intense. Uh Casino Royale, it had some stakes. It had some darker, edgier stuff that I didn't expect in a Bond film and yet had these lighthearted moments. You still had the uh, you know, classic wit of a Bond, uh, even though it was packaged in this grittier universe and this grittier hero. So there you go. Casino Royale, that's, that's number two, but number four on the journey of indoctrinating the spy movie aficionado (laughs) yeah so james bond i tell you daniel craig's james bond it was really a remarkable achievement i mean i think that that james bond needed to be reinvented for a lot of reasons um number one is is the really embarrassed embarrassing womanizing and just and just the the sexual harassment that he continued to do throughout all of his movies um but it was also time for uh, a grittier, more realistic bond. I think that, that the Bourne movies uh, pressed that home, that there was a place for that. Um, the Mission Impossible movies that I know you're not a huge fan of, 
but I think they are like they do quintessential Bond better than Bond does in some ways. Daniel Craig successfully reinvented Bond in a really remarkable way, and Casino Royale was sort of the first step on that. I think if I was going to put a Bond movie on here, it would come down to one of two choices for me. Um, Casino Royale was great, but it had that that last scene where there's a woman who drowns really painfully, and I have a hard time getting that out of my mind. So that sort of sullies that. But Skyfall... I mean, spoiler alert, but sure. <laughs> but Skyfall should have been nominated for Best Picture. I think that is one of the very, very best Bond movies I have ever seen. It holds... It's It, it can carry... It is just brilliant from beginning to end, and especially for a Bond fan like me, it has so many calls back to the past that I really appreciated it. But if you're going old school Bond, I think um, From Russia With Love is fantastic. You would, you commie. (laughs) (laughs) Quick update. It was great. Anyway. Quick update. Whether you're a communist or not, you can watch The Man Who Knew Too Little on Amazon Prime if you have four bucks. It's nowhere for free right now. Yeah. Well, no one wants to watch it. That's why. All right. Number one, Paul. Number one for me. Um, this movie is not going to get your blood pumping like Casino Royale or Skyfall or Mr. and Mrs. Smith or most of the other movies on here. But in terms of a gripping, intelligent spy thriller, nothing can hold a candle to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. 2011, Gary Oldman stars uh, as as the main spy who's trying to root out uh, a double agent sort of within the, the midst of, of the British Secret Service. Um, it stars, it seems like every single British actor there is. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is in it, Colin Firth is in it, um, but Gary Oldman really steals the show. He is incredibly um, understated in this. Whereas usually you see him in these more demonstrative roles, he barely twitches any of his facial muscles at all, but he is still incredibly compelling to watch. And as the story unfurls, um, I just found myself leaning farther and farther forward in my seat to, to see where the next twist and turn would go. So that's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy 2011. It's great. And it's on Netflix right now. Netflix right now. Be sure to connect with your VidAngel account so you can skip past the unsavory bits. <laughs> there is a bit of language from what I recall. It's not as bad as what you might think, at least from my memory. Yeah, no, I think it's on the uh, it is on the lighter side, but there are a few moments worth uh, worth giving the old skipperoony. Skipperoony. Yeah, that's the that's the scientific term that we like to use. Skip room. <laughs> Content caveat with Jake Roberson. That's right. All right, number one on my list, sure to draw Paul's uh, protest here, is actually a trilogy of films, and that's the Bourne trilogy. Oh, Boom! Good. It's all one film. I mashed them together. You got to watch them all three because they are the story 
it's different. It's just different. When you watch the Bourne movies together, they are one film. Yeah, if you watch all 27 James Bond movies, it's also different. <laughs> but you can't. No, 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 no. They are all very different. It's the same character, but the Bourne trilogy is a tightly told story within one arc for this character within three films. I disagree. I disagree. I well, mean, because you've never watched it. You've never watched the Bourne films. But it's still totally cheating to list three movies as your number one movie. All right, so if I have to pick just one, uh, I pick all three. But <laughs> if I have to pick one part of the one of the three, then I would go. I'd give a slight edge to the Born Supremacy. Um, the one? What's that? Is that the middle one? That's the middle one. Yep. The middle one, uh, you know, introduces some real stakes. It cuts your heart out pretty early on. Um, it's got uh, Carl Urban in it in a in a really great and understated role kind of early well not early in Carl Urban's career but he was just starting to get some attention for his Lord of the Rings stuff right and uh, all of a sudden you have him inside this Bourne series and you see him in a whole new light and it's fantastic it's got some epic action sequences and really starts to cement takes Jason Bourne you know the first movie tightly told action story but now it gets bigger and now it gets uh, it gets messier, it gets darker and draws you into the heart of Jason Bourne just that much more and sets up, you know, some great stuff to come and really sells you on the whole trilogy. So um, for me, it's a bit like the empire strikes back in terms of sequels in the midst of trilogies. Yeah. Yeah. If I was going to pick a Bourne movie for this and it, it would have, you know, if I was opening up my list, I think that a Bourne movie probably would have made my, top 10 I, but i'd probably go with born identity just because the launching of the character was so compelling i think that it was it was a different version of of any sort of spy thriller that i had ever seen before and just the idea that he there was this guy with all these latent abilities that he had no clue about what was going on was really compelling to me i i really enjoyed just the setup and the later additions worked well too but i i think that that just the the creation of the story was the best yeah it's it's good stuff and you know it kind of felt like um the born series the born trilogy was a good bridge from the old spy stuff to the new spy stuff you know because it was building on material that had been written you know decades before while the russians were the primary so they had to adapt it for a modern audience right and uh, I thought they did that really well in a way that was accessible across kind of generational divides, um, which was something that impressed me. You know, I read the book, at least the first one. I haven't read all three, but uh, or the other, the subsequent follow-ups. But um, anyways, I really appreciated the way it modernized the spy genre into this harder, a little bit more physical, uh, but, but maintain that cerebral sense from the old school uh, spy films. In, in a way that, you know, maybe was not the case in Casino Royale. Yeah, it, it, it is amazing, actually, how how smart those films feel and as action-packed as they are. Um, I was actually reading somewhere that, that the Bourne movies 
they actually demand like half of the pages of a script that that a normal movie does just because the action sequences are so frenetic and because oftentimes they make up the dialogue as they go and yet even with that um there's there's an intelligence about them that is kind of surprising i and i appreciate it so yeah. that is a fine choice except for you're trying to cheat on it <laughs> yeah that's what i'm known best for cheating my <laughs> way to the top oh yeah there you have it for our definitive rankings of the best spy movies of all time. What do you think? How did we get it all wrong? Or at least in Paul's case. Um, or, or how would you choose to indoctrinate somebody new to the spy genre? How, what would be your sequence of films to give to them? How did I get it all wrong? Because, you know, you probably didn't see Robert Rodriguez, you know, popping into that list. So I'd be curious to hear how you would correct my list as well. I'm on Twitter at at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time for the most least important thing. in the most least important thing the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours it's where we dive into the minutiae of pop culture searching for golden nuggets delicacies to be consumed in your pop culture diet or vice versa we soar through the gold and we find the little salmon eggs masquerading as gold (laughs) because that's a thing salmon eggs got it Got it. Science. You didn't know you were signing up for science on pop culture with Van Boy and Know It All, but we may have just invented golden salmon eggs. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds that sounds objectionable to me. That sounds very strange. Paul, what do you got for us today? All right. I have a very strange story that you used to hear more about back in the back in the eighteen hundreds. This was something that uh that Edgar Allan Poe was always worried about. You don't think about it happening in modern day as much. But just recently, just within this last week, a woman was declared dead by paramedics, taken to a Detroit funeral home, and somehow she revived. She was fine. Oh. So, yeah, it's a it's kind of an unusual story where she just sort of I guess just revived, started walking around. Um, yeah, there you go. A woman who is dead and is now alive. For the grand scope of things, as we're dealing with the coronavirus and all the issues that we're dealing with, it may not seem like that big of a thing. But for this woman, it was a big deal. So it it, it sort of fits the very definition of most least important thing. Sure. Um, you know, a couple of questions. One, was she actually dead and then came back to life or just pronounced dead, but not really dead? No, and... she was pronounced dead. They, she was not actually, actually dead. Yeah. But paramedics said, yeah, she wasn't breathing. We didn't find a pulse, nothing like that. One would assume that she was alive. So she was only mostly dead. Mostly dead. That's exactly right. But it's, it's like those scenarios that Edgar Allan Poe always worried about, where it looks like you're dead. You know, you're not breathing. Your heart is really, really slow. They throw you in a coffin and there you are buried alive. So luckily for this Detroit woman, she was not buried, but she was on the process to get in that way. So yeah. 
Huh. My next question is, what the heck does this have to do with pop culture? Yeah, that's oh, good. that's more of a criticism. Sorry, let me reframe that. Paul, <laughs> what the heck does this have to do with pop culture? Yeah. Well, that's where I gave you the Princess Bride tie-in. So you can just take that, you know, that she was only mostly dead. Edgar Allan Poe. That's the tie-in. Because being buried alive, that is a long-time theme in literature. So ancient culture with Paul AP. Yeah, just because you're not literary literary enough to appreciate the tie-in, that's not my fault. <laughs> In a world where first responders don't know how to check a pulse, they thought she was dead, but now she's alive and back at home. Coming to your a screen near you next summer, summer 2021. The lazy first responder. Paramedics suck. My apologies to all paramedics. Any semblance to characters living or dead is purely on purpose because this is based on a true story. We'll give a writing credit to Edgar Allan Poe, and there we go. We've got a film. There you go. Speaking of films, uh, but this being an actual film, I've got a micro review for my most least important thing that I think feels really timely given the uh, fact that the United States is about to have a presidential election and seems to be dealing with some pretty stark ideological, uh, classist, ageist, racist divides, um, as one does, as one nation does, right? Classic, classic America. Oh, America. Dropping in the middle of what is sure to be a heated election season in fall 20 summer summer slash fall 2020 on Amazon prime is get duked. Get duked. It is a British slash Scottish black comedy about uh, four young boys, three vagabonds and one homeschooler who are tasked to set out to make their way through the Scottish Highlands for three of them as a punishment for one of them as a way to further his, um, his attractiveness to college recruiters and um, things get hairy really quickly. As I watched this film, it was like hot fuzz meets the Breakfast Club TikTok edition meets without a paddle with just a splash of the purge. And that like perfectly describes the film. <laughs> Underneath it all, it's dealing with uh, coming of age and also aging and the clash between generations and sort of looking at when we have these generational divides, maybe we're all struggling with the same problem. Uh, and dealing with it different ways and blaming others in different ways. And yet it does it with this completely ridiculous premise. Um, and even as you think it's about to land on the nose, stuff comes flying, literally flying out of nowhere to to just scrap the on the nose part almost all together and leave you thinking, what in the world? I laughed out loud several times in this film while watching it by myself. <laughs> which you know is the mark of some really some really good writing um it is rated r there's some language and some a few moments of uh extreme violence from a distance so it's like it feels restrained in that regard for an r rated film it's not 
uh, an all out violent mess. Uh, but at the same time, it is still R rated. So there's your content caveat. Um, but anyways, it, it feels so interestingly prescient as it combines hip hop and octogenarians and drugs and small town policing and hip hop in the Scottish Highlands. In the Scottish Highlands. Yeah. Interesting bit of trivia about this. Just three weeks ago, it had a totally different name. Yeah. The wood. Boys in the Wood with a Z. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it actually debuted in 2019 at a bunch of festivals, but then didn't actually get distribution until this year. Amazon picked it up at the end of 2019 and decided, oh, we'll, we'll release it in August 2020. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. It's gotten some fairly good reviews. I mean, you're not the only one who enjoyed it. So it it could be could be one of those sleepers. You never know. Although I do have to say I have just seen the best movie of the coronavirus era. Oh yeah? Yes. It was pretty great. It was the new version of David Copperfield, believe it or not. Very different from Get Duked, I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah. Very, very different. It's called The Personal History of David Copperfield. Stars a whole bunch of people. House, the guy who plays House is in it. A Doctor Who is in it. Um, Dev Patel stars as David Copperfield. Um, it's pretty great. So I'll, I'll put my David Copperfield up against your Get Duked and, and we can duke it out next time. That's true. Uh, one already has a higher rating on IMDb, so... Uh... We'll just we'll just leave it leave it at that. You guys can find out which one that is. <laughs> but there you go. You can watch Get Duked on Amazon Prime. Be sure to use your VidAngel filter if you need to, just like you would need to for uh, for Paul's films. Personal history of David Copperfield, clean as the proverbial whistle. Well, that's gross because if there's one thing we've learned from COVID, it's that whistles are not very clean. Paul, it says it's rated PG for thematic material. You can't tell me it's clean as a whistle and it's got thematic material in it. Yes, that thematic material, it's pretty salacious. That'll get you every time. Those Dickens books, they will just... Whoa, I'm going to have to bleep you out again. You're dropping <laughs> crass terminology for genitalia in this show. Oh my goodness. You started with female genitalia, you end with male genitalia. It's a trend. It's a trend. Uh, we better get off of here before we have to slap an E rating on this bad boy. I'm already going to have to edit for days. <laughs> That's all we've got for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and All at All. Please be sure to catch up with us and all of our, uh, you know, very well-spoken profanity-free tweets on the Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye.